Welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is episode 11, Chinese Society. episode, I concluded the 18th century and, they, and the long, eventful reign of Qianlong. He had abdicated and turned over the empire to his son. In this episode, I thought I would digress from our chronology. The turn of the century and the end of the Qing, Qianlong reign seems like a good spot for the forthcoming episode. This episode is not a review of the last 150 years of Qing rule. I think it is important to talk about Chinese society during this time. The Qing, Manju influence, women, families, culture, trade, population. This is only going to be a flyover, flyover review, very broad, and intended to supplement the material that I covered in the first 10 episodes. I find it particularly fascinating, the differences between the Manjo Chinese and the Han Chinese, the dominant ethnic group, especially the differences among the women. After all, they are half the population. In 1638, Huang Taiji issued an edict. It was directed primarily to bannermen and their families and warning them that anyone wearing alien non-Manju dress or for men bound up hair or for women bound feet might fool themselves a Qing, but are really with the alien regime. His edict went further. It stated, any man that bound up their hair would be shaved and then executed. Any woman that bound their feet would have their feet cut off and then executed. Remember, though, the edict was issued while the Ming were still the ruling dynasty in China. The Manjus were still forming and organizing their eventual conquest of China at the time of Huang Taiji's edict. So the edict was more a public declaration of Qing identity than actual policy. It was announcing to the Ming and to the Chinese people then the Manju promise, their charter. It certainly said a lot about Manju fashion and tolerance. The Ming, or Han Chinese, encouraged foot-binding in females. It began when the girls were five and continued well into their teens. The feet were wrapped tightly, virtually incessantly. On the other hand, for Manju females, they they never practiced that, 
and it was forbidden. A smartly appearing Ming or Han Chinese male then would wear their hair in a top knot. But for Manju men, they shaved their foreheads, except for the back of their heads, from which they would grow long hair or a braided queue. I am sure you have all seen this fashion. After the Manju conquest, con- conquest of China, the actual fashion policy was more moderate, particularly for the women. By the way, contrary to what many think, foot binding was not done to physically restrain or limit, or limit women's mobility. Please understand I'm not condoning the practice and it is horrendous as it is. But foot binding was a fashion habit of Chinese women at that time. The proof of this is the Manju women who imitated the small feet by wearing high platform shoes. Pictures of these women from the mid-19th century show them wearing the iconic platform shoes, giving the illusion they had small feet. Where this gets interesting, however, is that the Han Chinese women and their families refused to give up the practice of foot binding after the Qing conquest of China. So the Qing government dropped the enforcement of that part of its edict. And it has been duly observed that the irony of the practice of foot binding served as a powerful symbol of the enduring strength of females resisting foreign invasion. That's really great stuff. This resistance also, ironically, made Han males feel more humiliated because they had to adopt to Manju hairstyles. Despite the moderation of the fashion edict for the females, for Han men it was strictly enforced. And this makes some sense. Females had no political voice. They could not have public positions. Their only acceptable occupations were things that were done in their households. So females had no public status. Whereas Han men did, and if they wanted to work elite occupations for or with the Manjos, they had to obey Qing dress codes. For women during the Qing time, they were largely treated unfairly. They had no property rights except to their dowries. They were expected to obey the three obediences. And those three are obey their fathers when they were girls, obey their husbands when they were married, and obey their sons in their widowhood. The primary goal of the Qing household then was to produce a male heir. Secondarily, marrying their daughters a lesser goal. Males were important that if an elite family did not produce one, they would adopt a male. Not producing a male heir 
was not only looked down upon, but it also provided the husband with an excuse to take on a concubine. Daughters were expected to marry. By marrying into another village or class or rank family was one way for a Qing family to increase their social status through their daughters. Marriages were frequently arranged by the parents. Sons would live with their wives in the son's family home. Daughters would be expected to live their households, to leave their households when they married. If daughters did not marry, then becoming a concubine was considered a viable option. And interestingly, the concubine was often chosen by the man's wife. This unfortunately left many villages and households without eligible women, creating an overabundance of unmarried males, particularly among the lower class. Compounding this problem was Qing law, which prohibited intermarriage between respectable commoners and the riffraff or hoi polloi lesser class, if you will. During the Ming Dynasty, it would be standard practice that a wife would commit suicide after the death of her husband to be with him and serve him in the afterlife. The Qing actually discouraged this practice, particularly with younger widows. Although the prospect of remarriage for a widow was apparently not good, there are correspondences that were written by women during this time, and they complained of abandonment by their families, society, and the community. Fascinatingly, chastity was desired with widows and openly promoted. Communities would nominate chaste widows and submit their names to the emperor to receive recognition and commendation. Communities would erect arches in public places praising the chaste widows in their community. Despite all of this, however, suicide rate among widows was still high. On a brighter note, Manju dressing style became the fashion in China. For both females and males, long, loose-fitted gowns were worn. This was a throwback to the Manju pastoral husbandry habits from many years ago. The gowns would have four slits for the men to accommodate horseback riding. For the women, the gowns had two slits on the side. Elite persons wore gowns made from silk, satin, and gauze. Lesser class gowns were made from cotton or coarse furs. Court dress was mandated to be in yellow and blue colors and dragon motifs, the dragon representing authority bestowed by heaven. Manju females were already tall because of the elevated shoes, but they were made taller by their hairstyles, which were done in elaborate ways. One way was they would wear a frame attached to their head and their hair would be wrapped through the frame in intricate detail. Finally, many professions were hereditary only, such as doctors, brewers, priests, and bannermen. 
By all accounts that I encountered, population growth during the Qing dynasty was unprecedented. It was also unprecedented in Europe at that time. Europe's population growth, however, apparently was the result of high fertility rates, or at least that was one of the reasons given. China's growth was not. It seems China's fertility rates remain the same. Studies and theories that I read suggest that China's population growth during the first 150 years of the Qing dynasty was attributable to a prosperous, peaceful period in China. Some have also suggested it was as a result of improved food quality and amounts. Ironically, while better and abundant food may have caused the population growth, population growth was putting increasing strain on food supplies. The Qing government started to take notice of this issue and began to take a more assertive role in managing the food supply. It is well documented that China consistently imported increasing amounts of foodstuffs, which thus far had met their demand. Understand that many population estimates from 1650 to 1800 cannot be relied upon. The records may not be complete or the calculation units were different. But some credible population numbers do exist. The accepted conservative opinion is that the population exploded the first half of 1600. At the year 1700, the population in China was estimated to be at 150 million people. It then doubled by 1800 to over 300 million. Interestingly, it took nearly 1600 years for the population to double from the first century after the modern after the modern era. Because of Chinese territorial expansion during the early Qing era, the amount of arable land greatly increased. Expectantly, the Chinese people migrated to those areas. Land ownership was open to anyone, and many took advantage of the opportunity. Migrant flows in China then were from the east to the west. Unlike Europe, however, where the biggest population growth at that time was in urban areas, in China it was in the rural areas. China experienced vast, unprecedented migration to the northeast, the northwest, and the west area, western areas of China. The most populated areas of China during early Qing dynasty to around the year 1800 were Peking, Sochou, Canton, Nanking, and Wuhan. Canton and Sochou being, of course, large seaport areas. Southeast China was the most populated region at that time. A credible contemporary writer from the late 1600 period documented in China then there were dismal conditions and dismal economic it was, and a dismal economic picture. 
he alluded to widespread poverty, chronic under, underemployment, depressed prices, lots of unsold goods, and scarce money, especially silver. He opined that money scarcity was the root of many of the problems besieging the Qing dynasty. So how do we square this picture with the other stories of prosperity and growth during the same time? I don't think we can. Perhaps it was just two different perspectives. Some have countered that that dismal picture portrayed by that particular author was still an improvement compared to what it was before the Qing dynasty, where mass starvation was the norm. So at least that had changed. On trade, it was 50 years into Qing rule before they finally had a foothold on the country and foreign trade recovered. Part of the long recovery was because, remember, Kangxi had evacuated the southeast part of China, the coastline, from Zhenjiang to Vietnam to fight Taiwan rebels. The trade history between China and the rest of the world is a complex subject. Attempting to summarize it, as I will attempt to do here, may be foolish but necessary. An entire podcast series could be done on Chinese sea trade, import and export. That, however, is not my purpose with this podcast. I discuss it here only to provide a general background on how it affects the coming story and the drama of this podcast series. The Chinese, or China, even long before the Manjus, had a love-hate relationship with maritime trade connections. Their uneasiness to it, in part, was based on their perception that Chinese living along the ports and exchanging talk with foreigners were less loyal to the regime. Chinese leaders and authorities felt that these Chinese, including those that were traveling in and out of China, were contaminated, both spiritually and morally, particularly from European religious missionaries. During this time, very few foreigners traveled in China's interior unless they were part of a tribute emissary to Peking, and they were always accompanied by Chinese. Prior to the Qing, and even at the onset of their dynasty, the trade connections they had with foreigners were tribute emissaries rather than full-scale trading for commercial purposes. But that began to change with the Qing dynasty as it began to feel more secure and comfortable in its reign over China. And this set that dynasty apart from the Ming dynasty. The Portuguese had been present at Macau from a very, very early time. By 1664, it was recorded that there were Dutch permitted into the coast of Canton through the Dutch East India Company. But these early connections were more like tribute emissaries. By late 17th century, this all changed. 
By that time, all Chinese ports were open to all foreigners, regardless of their tribute intentions. About this time, the English came into the picture. By the early 18th century, the French ships began to arrive. Canton was by far the busiest and most desirable because of its connections with Southeast Asia. Tea was most dominant. Tea in European consumption and demand soared during the early 18th century, and the English were the most prominent. Estimates state that tea exports from China to Europe doubled from 1720 to 1740. By 1765, that had doubled again. And by 1795, that had doubled again. Along with this growth was porcelain exports from China to Europe. It was very fashionable in Europe at that time to drink Chinese tea from Chinese teapots. Most popular exported from China, the most popular export from China and imported to Europe was the familiar blue and white patterned porcelain ware. Silk was another popular export from China at this time. Most of these things from China were paid for with silver. The Chinese were generally not interested in European stuff. There was some cotton imports into China from India, and England facilitated that trade. So generally, Europeans were importing from China tea, porcelain, and silk. And in return, China was importing silver, pepper, cotton, wool, and later opium. A huge trade imbalance was growing between China and its European trading partners. There was not enough silver in the world to pay for all the things China was exporting. And the Chinese had no interest in European manufacturers. It was into this imbalance or vacuum that opium appears. Opium had long been or had a medicinal function. Taken orally, it helped with stomach pains and fevers. And it was not addictive or had any hallucinogenic effects. But when opium was combined with tobacco and smoked, it was highly addictive and had hallucinating properties. It is not clear when opium first arrived in China. As of late 1600, European traders recorded no hint of it. But by 1735, English traders stated it was everywhere. In 1760, the records show about 1,000 chests of opium were imported into China each year. In 1780, that grew to 1,300 chests per year. And in 1800, 
that grew to 3,000 chests per year. In the span of 40 years, the amount of opium into China tripled. This was an alarming escalation and one that would have enormous effects into the next century. The next episode, I'll get back to my chronology and I'll talk about the next emperor. I thank you and it's been a pleasure. <laughs>